Welcome, friends, to Canadian Patriot Radio, where conspiracy is not theory and political corruption finds the spotlight. CPR, we are committed to upholding Canadians' God-given rights to life, liberty, and freedom with all thy sons. Command. Hello, my friends. You are tuned into Canadian Patriot Radio, and my name is Critch. Today is May 31st, 2023. After a brief uh, break from recording due to uh, moving cattle to pastures and getting everybody settled, we are back, and we're going to continue highlighting uh, what we consider to be the most important interviews coming out of the National Citizens Inquiry. Uh, reason being is I think a lot of people missed there's there's so much material to go through and i think a lot of people uh just don't have the uh i guess fortitude to go to sift through it all and and hear what's actually being said like um the whole of covid narrative is has been blown apart in canada it's over it's over they didn't have any right to to uh to do what they did they didn't have right the right to force uh experimental injections on us and these uh, testimonies are proof of that. Um, so today what we're going to do is we're going to cover Dr. Charles Hoff's uh, testimony. He he was running a practice out in BC. I'll let him tell his story to you. It's quite shocking. Um, of course, he's got lots of data. Uh, very smart man. He kind of had a hunch that the vaccines were no good and he uh, you know took reassurances to make sure that he could prove that. So without any further ado, let's turn it over to Dr. Charles Hoff. Um, this testimony was in Ottawa. Good afternoon. My name again is Stephen Price. I'm a local lawyer here as a volunteer to assist. We have as a witness this afternoon Dr. Charles Hoff. Dr. Hoff is a medical doctor practicing in the province of British Columbia who has had uh, serious uh, impact on himself due, due to COVID. Uh, Dr. Hoff, do you, uh, you're appearing today. Do you promise to tell the truth and uh, explain what your story to us? I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, sir. Help me, God. There's a Bible somewhere. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Uh, Dr. Hoff, could you please give us a quick outline of your education and qualifications, please? Yes, I'm a, I'm a family practitioner and, and trained emergency room physician. I did my medical training in South Africa. Um, I have worked in South Africa, in the United Kingdom, and in Canada as a family doctor and as an emergency, a rural emergency room physician. I've been in Canada since 1990 uh, and in British Columbia since 1993. I gather when COVID started, you were working in Lytton? Yes. What were your uh, duties or occupation there? I was the town's only resident doctor. I have been the town's only resident doctor since 2004. 
So I'm a hardcore rural GP and emergency room doctor, and so I did more emergency room shifts than anyone else. I did have other doctors that would come and assist me to give me a break, but I was very dedicated to the protection of and the health care of our community. I understand you're no longer working as an emergency room doctor. That is correct. What happened? I think, let me go back to the beginning and, and weave that into the story, because I think my testimony of, of what happened to me and my patients in this pandemic reveals a great deal of what has gone so seriously wrong. It is your testimony, sir. Please proceed. So people need to know that there has never been any successful vaccine made against coronaviruses. And so when the first dangerous coronavirus appeared in 2002, which came out of Wuhan in China, which was called the SARS virus, following that, scientists tried to make a gene-based vaccine against it because all previous conventional vaccines against coronaviruses had failed to either be safe or effective. So they, would test, they tested this on laboratory animals. Ferrets and mink and other animals like that are very susceptible to coronaviruses. And so they, they developed a gene-based vaccine which they tested on these laboratory animals. And when they took blood from these laboratory animals that had been vaccinated, they found they had antibodies to the, to the, to the coronavirus, and they realized that they had discovered a brilliant, new, cheap, and effective way of making vaccines. However, several months later, when they challenged these laboratory animals with the infectious organism that they had been vaccinated against, they found that these laboratory animals became extremely sick, and many of them died. So this, this new type of vaccine turned out to be a complete failure. In fact, what they had created was not a vaccine, but an anti-vaccine. Because instead of protecting those animals against this new virus, it actually made them more vulnerable than if they had not been vaccinated. And the reason why I'm telling you that is that I'm going to show you what has happened to Canada, and exactly the same thing has happened here. So, when I heard that they were again using gene-based vaccines against SARS-CoV-2, the second SARS virus, I was not filled with hope or confidence because I knew that the previous efforts had been a disastrous failure. So, and when I heard that with the new vaccines, they weren't even doing animal trials, I was even more concerned. When I realized that they were rolling this out with, with no long-term safety data. It had only been, the, the shots had only been tested on a select group of relatively healthy adults, no children, no pregnant people, no frail elderly, no First Nations people, a, a lot of demographic groups that had, had literally not been tested on at all. And it was warp speed technology, which is a disaster for any vaccine and particularly for a brand new technology that had no history of safety or effectiveness. So two and a half months into, this, into the VAX rollout, when 12 countries in Europe had already shut down the AstraZeneca vaccine because of, of life-threatening blood clots, and Canada was continuing to barrel on with it because Trudeau said even though it wasn't safe for the people of Europe, it was fine for Canadians, I thought that this was a significant safety signal that we could not afford to ignore. And so I sent an email to a group of doctors, a do, a, a medical colleagues, doctors, nurses, and pharmacists in, in the Lytton Lillooet area of southern British Columbia, saying, we have reached a turning point in this vaccine rollout. There is a serious safety signal in Europe. And, and for any healthcare practitioner to administer these shots without informing the people of, of, of the risk of harm there is a serious liability issue for those people because there is no informed consent. I sent this as a private email to 18 colleagues. One of those people sent this to the regional health authorities and three days later I was in a meeting with my superiors there who told me that I was guilty of causing vaccine hesitancy. 
and that that private email was being sent to the College of Physicians and Surgeons as a complaint because I was putting people at risk by creating vaccine hesitancy. And I was told that I was not allowed to say anything negative about these vaccines in the course of my work as an emergency room doctor. And I was told that if I had any questions about them, the questions were not to be directed to my colleagues, but to the medical health officer in charge of the vaccine rollout for our area. So I accepted my reprimand. I then began to see very serious neurological problems arising in my own patients. I had been these people's family doctor for 29 years. I knew them very well. And when I saw new disease processes initiated in these people that I had no explanation with, that all started anywhere between, anywhere up to 72 hours after their shot in every case, I sent a letter to this medical health officer that I had been told to direct my questions. And I asked them what disease process was being initiated by this gene-based therapy and how, as these people's doctors, should I be treating it? And I asked whether it was ethical to continue this vaccine rollout in the light of the evidence of harm. And the silence was deafening. That letter was sent as a complaint to the College of Physicians and Surgeons. So I then drafted a letter to Dr. Bonnie Henry, where I essentially put, I, I set out the number of people that had been vaccinated and the number of people that, from that group that had neurological problems. And I gave an exact breakdown of the, of the risk of neurological harm. And it might interest you to notice that the, the CARES data, which is the Canadian Adverse Event Reporting System, records neurological injuries as the top category of injury. And that is exactly what I was seeing. I was also seeing lung and heart problems and skin problems and other issues but neurological problems was number one. So I sent a letter to Dr. Bonnie Henry where I asked many of the same questions. She referred them, she, she did, I, and because I was warned she doesn't reply to, to letters, I was told that I better, had better make it an open letter because it was just going to go straight into the shredder if it just went to her. So it went as an open letter and attracted international attention because at that point, the Moderna vaccine had not been incriminated for causing neurological harm. And all of my initial problems that I was seeing were all from Moderna. So the matter was referred to as a vaccine safety specialist. And I was offered a telephone meeting with this top vaccine safety specialist appointed by Dr. Bonnie Henry. And I asked this vaccine safety specialist all the same questions. What disease process has been initiated in my patient to cause, patients to cause all these problems? And she assured me that these were not from the vaccine, that these were all coincidences, or if they weren't coincidences, were from poor injection technique. In other words, the, the needle was incorrectly positioned in the deltoid muscle. And I said, but these symptoms are all over the rest of their body. It cannot be from a misplaced needle. That is logically and scientifically and medically absurd. But she assured me that these were not from the shot. These shots did not cause neurological problems. So I said, well, there is a crisis because my patients didn't have these problems before. Please, would you assist me to investigate what is causing this? And she said, no, she could not. The only thing she could do was to send me the, the, uh, the, the link for the vaccine injury reporting form that they should be reported. And I said, well, I've already got the vaccine injury reporting form. I want this investigated. So she said that she could not assist me with that. So I said, okay, if I submit vaccine injury reporting forms, will those trigger an investigation? She said, no, they will simply become statistics. So I realized that at the highest level that there was a denial of these safety signals that they did not want to know about safety signals. That, because this made absolutely no medical sense. Every doctor's highest priority should be the safety of their own patients. So I, I realized that I was essentially going to be on my own trying to figure this out. So about 
five weeks after I'd received my gag order that I was not allowed to say anything negative about these shots in the course of my work, a vaccine-injured patient came into the emergency room. And I, it was a Saturday evening. I was on call for the emergency room. The nurse phoned me at home and explained that this patient had come in and what their symptoms were. And I said to her, I know that patient very well. She had COVID. She and her whole family had COVID five weeks ago. And it was a very minor illness for all of them. And now she is far more sick from the vaccine than she'd been from COVID. Please, will you tell her she doesn't need her second shot? She has natural immunity, and the evidence for that is that when she got COVID, it was very mild. That means she has natural immunity. Please tell her she doesn't need her second shot. And I explained to that nurse the evidence from, from Duke University in Singapore that was done in the first year of this pandemic that was very important research, and I'm going to go through it quickly now because everyone needs to know. When this new virus appeared, no one knew how long natural immunity would last. And the, the health authorities tell us it's a couple of months. Well, these researchers realize that when you've got a brand new virus, you can't know how long natural immunity is going to last because it's a new virus. So the best shot at finding out would be to, to look for natural immunity to the first SARS virus that came out in, in 2002, because that was 17 years before, and would tell us how long natural immunity to a SARS virus would last. And so in Singapore, where there was a lot of that first SARS virus in the, middle, in the Far East, they recruited people who had recovered from that first SARS virus and asked them if they could take blood from them to see if they were still immune. And they found that they were still immune 17 years later. It was not antibody immunity, it was T-cell immunity. So looking for antibodies is, is the tip of an iceberg. That's, this is T-cell immunity. And by the way, that is why... Um, so, and then, then they tested members of the, of the general population there to see... So if these people that had this first SARS virus were still immune to it 17 years later... What about the rest of the population that never had it? And they found that 50% of them, this was near the beginning of this pandemic, had natural immunity to it from the other coronaviruses that circulate every flu season. It was cross-immunity. And, the, and then they tested those people who had natural immunity to the first SARS virus to see if they were immune to COVID, and they found that the natural immunity covered COVID. And so the relevance of that, that those two viruses, the first SARS virus and the second SARS virus, were 20% different genetically. And so the importance of this is that if your natural immunity is good enough to defend you against a virus that is 20% different, a variant that is 20% different, it will protect you against every variant of of, of SARS-CoV-2, because even Omicron, which has 30 mutations making it different, is only 3% different. So I explained this all to this nurse, and I said, on the basis of this, please will you tell this patient that she doesn't need her second shot? And the nurse told me that she was not allowed to tell anyone that, she, that they didn't need a shot. So I said, okay, I'll tell the patient. On the basis of that, I was fired from the emergency room. On the basis of that conversation, to say that somebody who was vaccine injured and had proven natural immunity didn't need a COVID injection, I was fired. After 31 years as an emergency room physician with not one single patient complaint against me in those 31 years, I was fired for saying that somebody who had natural immunity didn't need to be vaccinated against the disease to which they were already immune. Fortunately, I still had my medical license, even though I'd lost a significant part, at least 50% of my income, and I couldn't work as an emergency room doctor anymore, I still had my private practice. So I continued on, but I realized that I needed to try and find out how to help my patients. So when I discovered from the uh, the biodistribution studies that Pfizer had hidden, that we knew that these vaccines go around your entire body, they do not just stay in your arm. The, Pfizer's biodistribution studies on the lipid nanoparticles show that they literally take those 
messenger RNA strands into every part of your body. They go into your brain and your lungs and your heart and your liver and your reproductive organs and your bone marrow and everywhere. Which is, by the way, why these COVID shots have caused a, a greater array of side effects than any other medical treatment in history. Because this toxic spike protein ends up in literally every, every part of your body without exception. It has broken all records for the most unbelievable variety of disease processes that it causes. So when I discovered that these, this vaccine doesn't just stay in your arm, it goes everywhere, into your brain and everywhere, I realized that because most of the absorption from your vascular system occurs in capillary networks, that's where most of the spikes are going to be. They, those spikes are going to be manufactured in your body, in the cells that surround your blood vessels, and mostly the capillaries, because that's where the blood slows right down, and that's where absorption happens in our bodies. And so, because knowing that those spike proteins are now going to make the surface of your cells rough and spiky, because that's what the spike protein is. It is the cells that make up the viral capsule of a COVID virus. That's what gives the coronavirus its characteristic shape, are these little spikes that stick out all around. And so I realized that the surface, the lining of your blood vessels in your capillaries is now going to be rough and spiky. And so I thought, well, as sure as smoking causes cancer, these spikes in the, in the, in the vascular endothelium are going to trigger clots. But most of the clots are going to be in the tiniest vessels where you may not even know they're there. So I realized that the only way to discover whether or not this clotting was, was occurring was to do a blood test called a D-dimer test, which is frequently done in the emergency room on any patients that a doctor thinks may have, have a blood clot somewhere in their body. So as my patients would come in for their appointment, for whatever it was, I would... I would ask them if they'd had their COVID shot and, and how was it going, because I was trying to figure out how many people were being harmed by this. And so I was asking everyone that came in, have you had your shot? And if so, how did it go? And, and I was trying to find people who would be willing to have this D-dimer test before their COVID shot and then one week later so that I had a baseline, so that I had a control on every patient and when I had literally got the first eight people's blood work back, and five out of the eight had a positive D-dimer, I could not keep silent. And I had an interview coming up with uh, Laura Lynn Tyler Thompson. She asked me what I wanted to talk about. And I said, I want to tell you what's happening to my patients. And I told her that at that point, uh, it was only eight people's results I'd got back, but 62% had evidence of clotting from these vaccines. And these were not vaccine-injured people. These were people who thought their shot did no harm. These were people who shot, thought, thought this shot was keeping them safe, and five out of eight had positive D-dimers. And that interview took off like wildfire around the world. It's now been subtitled into many languages that I do not recognize, but it created, it sort of blew the lid off this rare clotting thing. So tragically, literally over, shortly over a week later, our town and my medical practice and the lab where all these tests were done was burned to the ground in the Lytton fire. So that was the end of my reason. I was in my office seeing patients, and I literally just folded my laptop. I grabbed my D-dimer research, grabbed a few other things, and we ran out of the building, and everything burned to the ground, including the emergency room, where I'd worked for all these decades. So of course, the College of Physicians and Surgeons claims that my um, statement that this causes microclotting is misinformation. And I should just tell you that in total, I only ended up with 15 people, of which nine out of the 15, sorry, it was eight out of the 15, eight out of the 15 had positive D-dimers, which makes 
50, 53%. In other words, more than half of, of people that I tested with a, with a D-dimer one week after their shot, and there's no point in doing it months later. The D-dimer's gone back to normal. You've got to do it. I did it. Maximum of eight days was the cutoff. And more than half had the clotting. And my concern with the clotting is that this is permanent damage. A clotted vessel never goes back to normal. It is permanently damaged, and the damage will accumulate with every shot. And the worst part was that these people had no idea that they had been damaged. So, of course, the, the college claims that this is misinformation. So, I don't know if these slides are working. It, is there, can you see a slide on your screens? The third slide, it, should, it says expression of spike protein detected in capillaries. Can you see that? Yes. Okay. So, as people have been dying after their vaccines, many pathologists have said they don't know why they died. And that was simply because they had no way of identifying these spike proteins. Spike proteins are not supposed to be in our bodies. They are not supposed to be, they're not a human protein. So pathologists had no way of identifying them when they took tissue samples from people. They, they had no way of, 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 of knowing if the spikes were even there. So a brilliant pathologist from Germany called Professor Arnie Burkhardt figured out how to stain for a spike protein. And in this slide, if you can see it, the, the brown, the dark brown that you can see are spike proteins. So the slide on the left, you can see that is a, a small vessel that it, where the lining is completely impregnated with spike proteins. And the, the, the slide on the right, you can see those parts of that vessel where the lining is smooth, where there are no spike proteins. That's what it's supposed to look like. And you can see wherever there are spikes, it is rough. And so it is absolutely inevitable that these clots will form. So, do you remember that we were told that the way out of this vaccine, the way out of this pandemic was to get everyone vaccinated? That was what was going to keep us safe. But what I want to show you next was that literally what has happened to Canada is exactly what happened to those laboratory animals that were tested with the vaccine against the very first SARS virus, where it literally that so-called vaccine ended up working as an anti-vaccine and made them more vulnerable to the disease than if they had not been vaccinated. So what we now have is a pandemic of the vaccinated. Is that slide working? What have you got on your slide? Is it good? We literally have the pandemic of the vaccinated. So I'm going to show you the evidence that this this so-called vaccine is actually an anti-vaccine and that it has increased people's risk. It increases your chance of getting COVID, it increases your chance of spreading COVID, and it damages your, your immune system to such a degree that you have a higher risk of hospitalization and death. And of course, that's what the narrative that the, the public health keep telling us, that even though, even though they now admit it doesn't stop you getting COVID, it doesn't stop you spreading COVID, they say it'll keep you out of hospital, at least you won't die. And I'm going to show you the evidence for why that is absolutely false. So this is a very important study that came out um, a, a few months ago from Cleveland, Ohio. This was a study done on healthcare workers, 51,000 healthcare workers that had had various numbers of COVID injections. And if you can see there, there are five lines there, the, the, the bottom of the graph is the passage of time and they followed these people for three months to see who was getting COVID. And of course, the people that are getting COVID are the people who are spreading COVID. So the black line at the bottom is the people that were unvaccinated, zero doses of this virus, of the vaccine they were getting less COVID than anyone else. The next line up, the red line, is those that had had one dose of the vaccine. The green line, two doses. The blue line, three doses. 
and the top line, the brown one, were the people that had had the bivalent booster, the one that's supposed to keep you the safest. They were getting COVID more than anyone else. There was an absolute direct linear correlation that the more shots you got, the more likely you would get COVID and the more likely you would spread COVID. So let's look at the, so what about severe injury and death? This is, this is from New South Wales, Australia. Looking at hospital, this is two bar graphs. The one on the left is a bar graph with four bars showing, again, the number of, number of vaccine doses. Uh, the, the, the graph on the left, those columns are people in hospital. The graph on the right is people in ICU. So just for the sake of time and simplicity, let's look at the one of, of, of ICU, the, gr the graph on the right. You can see the people that had zero doses, in other words, the unvaccinated, there were absolutely none of them in ICU, zero. And literally, in pr the, the, of the people that had one shot, very few in ICU. And literally, the more shots they had, the more likely they would end up in ICU. It was an exact linear relationship the more accumulated damage to your immune system from these boosters, the more harm that you would have from this disease. This was functioning as an anti-vaccine, making you even more vulnerable. So what about Canada? So this is a graph from the government of Canada that actually goes up to March of, to mid-March of this year. By mid-March, there, there had been 97 million doses of COVID vaccines to the administered to the population of Canada. We had 86% of the population double vaxxed and 56% vaxxed and boosted. So that, the, the yellow part of that graph, the, these are not COVID cases, these are hospitalizations. The yellow part of that graph are people in hospital with COVID. The, the pink or the plum colored part at the bottom is ICU. So I've marked on there where the vaccine rollout began in, in mid-December 2020. And I've marked on there exactly one year later when, because of all of the, the fear propaganda, they had persuaded over 80% of the population to have at least two shots. And you can see what happened to the number of people in hospital with COVID once we had most people double vaxxed. We, and, and you can see it's never gone back down to what it was before. Previously, before there were any vaccines at all, in between the waves, we'd have almost nobody in hospital with COVID. It never goes back to that. We literally, this means that COVID is here to stay. We will never achieve herd immunity because of the damage done to people's immune systems from these shots. And this graph is the proof of it. You can see that literally it's now... It, it, it's, it's now endemic. This is not a pandemic. This is endemic because we will never... So many people have had their immune systems so damaged, and we know it's not just COVID. People are con that have, have had these shots are constantly sick with almost everything because it goes to every part of their body. So let's compare Canada, which is a largely vaccinated country, to South Africa, which was where I did my medical training and where I was born. In South Africa, 70% of the population refused these vaccines. 70% unvaccinated. You could, I've marked on that 31st of March, 2022, effectively, COVID, the pandemic essentially ended in Africa a year ago, over a year ago. They, they had achieved herd immunity uh, now, this is not COVID cases, this is COVID deaths. You can see their COVID deaths basically flatlined a year ago and has never gone back up. It continues. The, this next one is, is the whole of Africa. If you take the whole of Africa, that it's almost the same as South Africa. This is a largely unvaccinated people. They're done with COVID. They're back to normal because they didn't take the shots. This has been a public health disaster like never before. And so, so I hope that this has been helpful just in terms of showing tragically what has happened to this country as, due to the rollout of this, what has turned out to be an anti-vaccine.
I'm open to questions if anybody has any. I did have one question. What happened in terms of the complaints to the college? Yes, if you don't so, mind me asking. No, not at all. So, so I think I seem to hold the record for the most um, complaints that have all come from the doctors, you know, in, in the interior health and various others. Not a single patient complaint. The patient complaints are all from public health doctors who, who feel that I have put people at risk by creating vaccine hesitancy. So I... I have a, a disciplinary hearing that is scheduled that will be a 10-day trial. It was supposed to have occurred in February, um, but it was adjourned and a new date hasn't been set. It'll probably be in November or December of this year. So they, the fact that they have planned a 10-day trial um, I, I think is wonderful because I'm hopefully going to be able to show them a lot of very good scientific evidence and maybe help them to understand this. Um, the evidence is overwhelming. For for they have they have said, for example, that these shot that that it is misinformation to say that these shots cause neurological injuries. That it is misinformation to say that these shots have killed a lot of people. That it is misinformation. Um, to say that they affect fertility. And, and the, the evidence from all around the world is, is enormous. And, and, and part of the, 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 the tragedy with fertility is that, as I mentioned, the delivery system of this, to get the spike protein into every, every part of your body was designed to literally take it to your reproductive organs as well. And we know that these spikes cause clotting and bleeding and gene editing. Um, and they're highly toxic and highly inflammatory. And so the, the, the evidence that so many women have menstrual irregularities after these shots, that the, the, the live birth rate in every highly vaccinated country has, has significantly declined since the vaccine rollout, that, that, that midwives and doctors have seen unprecedented numbers of miscarriages and stillbirths, is, is huge evidence that this has affected fertility, but, but they've said that that is misinformation that this affects fertility. And, and, and Pfizer's own biodistribution study showed that the ovaries were one of the top four organs that was targeted where the spike proteins ended up. So the fact that they have wanted to give this to our children for whom COVID poses almost no risk. You know that there has not been one single healthy child under the age of 16 in Canada that has died of COVID, not one. And yet they have been determined to vaccinate our children with this thing where so much of it ends up in the ovaries. To me, that is very sinister because it makes no logical or scientific sense. These children are not at risk from COVID this is very sinister. Thank you, Doctor. Do the uh, commission members have any questions? Well, thank you very much, Doctor, for this uh, very enlightening presentation. Um, can you comment a little bit about the types or nature of uh, neurological damage or injuries you've seen in your patient, and how does that compare to what is seen in other places in the world? Is it a similar pattern, or do you find differences? Yeah, I think the commonest neurological problems that people hear about are, are firstly the strokes. And now, strokes are also a vascular injury, um, where you, you, you block a vessel or, or rupture a vessel and, and get bleeding in your brain. But, but of the neurological injuries, so I only have two patients that had strokes after their shot. The, major, the, the commonest neurological symptom in my patients is actually pain, chronic pain. So for some people, it's headaches. For some people, it's pain in other parts of their body. Um, in strange parts, I have one person who says the bottom of her feet has been incredibly painful since her COVID shot. But, but, so, but as I said, this was designed to literally go everywhere. I have three people in my practice where both hands are extremely weak. They cannot open a jar 
anymore. One of them had to change the door handles in her house from a round doorknob because even using both hands, she couldn't open her doors anymore. Her hands were both so weak. And so for it to cause symmetrical weakness both sides, that means that this has affected your spinal cord. If it was your brain, it wouldn't be that symmetrical. It wouldn't be symmetrical. So, so these are spinal cord injuries in three of my patients. In many others, in some, it's, it's light sensitivity. I had a 38-year-old lady um, who, who developed five cranial nerve neuropathies. So the cranial nerves are nerves that control your face and your head that come directly out of your brain, not out of your spinal cord. Um, as I mentioned, when I had asked this vaccine safety specialist if she would assist me to find a neurologist that would investigate these people, and she told me she could not. And I said, but I have phoned three tertiary hospitals to try and find a neurologist that I can send. And at that point, I had six neurologically injured people at that point. I said, these six people need to be investigated urgently. And she said she couldn't help me. And I said, but I have phoned, I phoned Royal Inland Hospital in Kamloops, I phoned St. Paul's, I phoned Vancouver General, well, I speak to the neurologists, they all say, sorry, we can't help you. And the key thing was, as soon as they heard this was from the vaccine, they go dead quiet on the phone and they said, um, I'm sorry, this is not my field. And so, and I said to her, what am I supposed to do? And she said, don't tell them it's from the vaccine. Can you believe it? This is the top vaccine space safety specialist in BC. And they had no interest in investigating what disease process was caused. No interest at all. Their only interest was to get me to shut up. And I won't. Uh, my other question has to do with the... Um you mentioned initially in your research that uh, when the similar type of vaccine were tested with SARS-CoV-1, and maybe there's been some also with MERS, that there's been uh, issues with uh, injuries when the animal were challenged with the, with the virus. So in your practice, have you noticed that the injuries were following patients that had previous COVID infection and then were vaxxed, or is it unrelated no they are related um so for example that patient that the, that i told the nurse to tell her she didn't need her second shot the one who got she got way more sick from the shot than she did from COVID. And, and the reason why the two work together it's the same poison in both the poison is the spike protein that is the toxin i mean these the lipid nanocapsules are very toxic on their own and the fact that they want to use those lipid nanocapsules as a delivery system for all these other mRNA-based vaccines that they've got coming, that is a very toxic delivery system because those lipid nanocapsules on their own cause a lot of pathology. But what happens when a person has had COVID, they get exposed to some of those spike proteins. Then they get the vaccine and they get a whole ton more which means they're getting more of the same pros, and that's why people who have had COVID who get vaccinated have worse vaccine injuries. They're getting more of the same poison. So the fact that they forced people who, who knew they had natural immunity, and the way you know you've got natural immunity is you get COVID and it's mild. Your body had natural immunity. There was very good research done uh, by Dr. Stephen Pellick and others were involved in it here in BC, here in Canada, that showed one year into this pandemic that 90% of the population has had natural immunity to some degree of COVID-19. Before there was any vaccine rollout at all, we knew that 90% had natural immunity. In other words, for 90% of the population, this was not a risk and yet they forced these people to be vaccinated. And now their immune systems are seriously damaged, and you've, you've seen what that graph looked like of, the, of, of Canada's desperate situation now, um, where we have a pandemic of the vaccinated because all of these people who had natural immunity have had their natural immunity ruined. 
Was there an indication of uh, these type of pathology in the animal that were actually tested previously? Was there a hint that you could anticipate that with these new vaccines when we would roll down the vaccine in human population? No, what they saw in those early laboratory animals was simply what's called antigenic enhancement or pathogenic priming, where basically your body gets primed against this thing, so when you then get exposed to it, it overreacts. And they went into a massive inflammatory state called a cytokine storm that basically either killed them or made them very sick. And so that's slightly different from the spike proteins in the brain. Uh, you know, for example, the patients that I have that had... Uh, ringing in the ears, uh, a, a dizziness. So, so these would be symptoms of spike proteins in your brain if you got this shot. Headache, unusual tiredness, nausea, dizziness, light hypersensitivity, sound hypersensitivity. Um, all of those would be evidence of spike proteins in your brain. And, and, of course, now that they can stain for or some pathologists know how to stain for spike protein, we know it's in the brain. It goes into the brain. It goes everywhere because they've got autopsy samples literally from almost every part of the body showing that these spikes go there. So, so this is very ominous that they chose a delivery system that took these spikes into literally every part of your body. You don't need that for a vaccine. For a vaccine, it only needs to be in, in, in your, it, needs, it should stay in your arm, and that's where the antibodies should be produced. It doesn't need to get into your brain or into your heart or your lungs. I'm curious about your D-dimer that you've been doing to get a sense of what would be the frequency of these type of damages even when people don't show any symptoms following the vaccination? Uh, obviously, you seem, I haven't seemed to be able to pursue these kind of D-dimer study, but are you aware of other labs either in Canada or across the world that have tested or follow up on this D-dimer analysis? Yes, I know. So after I... Um, exposed what I had found with my patients. Many other doctors around the world started doing the same thing, and particularly in emergency rooms, where people would go into emergency rooms with vaccine injuries. They would then do D-dimers and find massively high D-dimer levels on vaccine-injured people. I was doing it on non-vaccine-injured people. I was doing this on people who thought their shot did no harm. Um, because I was trying to find out, I was looking for hidden damage, because that's what the capillary clots would be. They're hidden damage which will accumulate. It's permanent damage, but it will accumulate. Because we knew, very early on, we knew Trudeau had ordered enough shots for six for every Canadian, and now apparently it's nine, but, but, but they, they clearly were planning to give us a lot. And so I was trying to find out whether the damage was cumulative, and of course, blood clotting damage is cumulative. So the, this could trigger different type of pathology depending on what capillary would be affected and what organ? Yes. So, so it means that when you try to monitor the, the side effect, you will find different description because it really depends on where it lands, right? Correct, yeah. So for example, I had one of my patients um, he was a patient who had uh, rheumatoid arthritis who would walk uh, three kilometers to, to my office every Wednesday for a, a, an injection that he would get for his arthritis. And it was part of his routine. Once a week, he'd walk three kilometers there and three kilometers home. And as soon as he had his first COVID shot, he literally could go a few hundred meters and he was done. He, he literally said he couldn't even do a quarter of a mile. And so I strongly suspect he got all the microclots in his lungs. And lung and brain and heart um, doesn't regenerate. Once you get clotted, scarred tissue in those organs, it is permanent damage and it will accumulate with every shot. And so I should mention to you just the other thing that I think is a really important thing. This vaccine safety specialist that t told me the only thing she was willing to advise me um, was that I needed to submit vaccine injury reports. So initially, the first six that I sent in um, d d literally 
the, the, the public health were putting out notices to our community saying that my allegations that anyone had vaccine injuries were false and that there was no evidence of harm. And one month after my letter to Dr. Bonnie Henry, the College of Physicians put out a notification to all doctors warning doctors that anyone that contradicted the public health narrative would be investigated and, if necessary, disciplined. This was their response to me revealing the evidence of harm, was to tell doctors that they were not allowed to reveal evidence of harm. You were not allowed to contradict the safe and effective narrative. Otherwise, you would be investigated and disciplined. And so when people wonder why people continue to think that the side of, you know, those people that have believed what the media have told us, it's because doctors have been warned that they're not allowed to question the narrative. They're not allowed. They're too afraid. They have to feed their family. They don't want to lose their medical license. They don't want to end up like me under investigation. And so this has helped push the narrative that, well, doctors are, seem to be all on board because they don't say anything. Well, they've been warned not to say anything. So I ultimately submitted 14 vaccine injury reporting forms. And out of those, every single one was denied by public health. Every single one. They would literally phone, they would, they would send a, a report back to me saying these are not vaccine injuries, these are all coincidences. And this person needs their next shot. And they would phone up the patient and tell them that this is not from your shot, you need to get your next shot. So I discovered that it was impossible to report the vaccine injuries because they literally get censored by public health so that they can carry on telling everyone that the side effects are incredibly rare. Maybe one last question. You said that the investigation uh, has been, well, the, the trial has been postponed. Uh, we can only speculate of the reason for that, but in your assessment, given that it's going to be months down the line, do you think that this will allow you to build a stronger case and the outcome will be more favorable? I don't think so, because unfortunately they're not following the science. It is clearly apparent. The fact that they completely ignore all the safety signals means that they're not interested in evidence. And, and you have to say, well, why, why does Health Canada completely ignore the safety signals? You only have to look at, for example, the VAERS or the open VAERS in the United States. Because, as I mentioned, the Canadian vaccine injury reporting system is, is a joke. You can't even report. I mean, it's a joke. But if you look at the American, the VAERS and the open VAERS, the vast number, I mean, I think it's now over 33,000 people dead. And by the way, 50% of those would have died within 48 hours of their shot. 33,000 dead. I think it's about 65,000 people permanently disabled. If any other medical treatment had ever done that, they would have been an absolute, the media would have been all over it, public health would have been all over it, would have been shut down. Yet, they're literally crickets. Just, they, they look the other way. And if you want to know why they look the other way, well, the FDA gets 50% of its funding from the pharmaceutical industry. Health Canada, it's over 80% of the funding for Health Canada comes from the pharmaceutical industry. So guess whose tune they're dancing to? This is a massive conflict of interest. No wonder they, they will conceal the evidence of harm. The, ph the pharmaceutical industry's done that for years. Pfizer holds the record for the biggest fine for scientific fraud and covering up evidence of harm in history, $2.3 billion. The pharmaceutical industry as a whole has paid, I think it, I, as far as I'm, I think I'm correct in saying $30 billion since the year 2000 for scientific fraud in court settlements and fines for scientific fraud. They are the most dishonest industry on earth. And yet Health Canada gets most of their funding from them. So if you want to know, well, why, is Health Canada, why does Health Canada ignore all the safety signals? Well, just follow the money. Guess who's paying them? Thank you very much.
Good afternoon. Thank you for your testimony. I'm just wondering if you can provide some insight into why the people of South Africa, 70% of them, decided not to get the vax. People in Africa have known that their governments have been dishonest for many generations. They have known, in, in Africa, people don't trust the governments. I don't think in any African countries. They know that the government, the people go into politics to get for power and wealth, not because they want to be public servants and protecting the people. And so when the government tells them something, they, I think, have a bit more critical thinking and, and don't just accept it at face value. I think perhaps that's the reason. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. Um, there's a couple of terms that we've been using, and, and we hear it in a lot of the testimony. And, and um, there's VAERS, which is a, um, uh, a, a reporting system in the United States. The, as I understand it, the government reporting system in Canada is called CAFIS. And then you talked about a system called CARES. Now, CARES, is, it's not the same as the government reporting system, is it? No, it, it's, it, it's a one where patients can report their, their vaccine injuries. Because there are a lot of doctors that are very reluctant to report vaccine injuries because they don't want to be seen as an anti-vaxxer. So as far as my understanding is, and I... This would need, need to validate this, that CARES is patient, where patients can literally report their injuries. So CARES is then a, a non-governmental system of reporting, mm -hmm. and CAFIS, the system that you tried to report to, where, the, um, where your reports were um, uh, unvalidated, if you will, or, or said that they weren't true, that was the government reporting system that the Health Canada told us was a strong reporting system to monitor the vaccine, is that correct? Yeah, they, they, well, they kept quoting that that was the evidence that this was so safe because there were so many, there were, they'd given out so many doses with so few reported injuries. You know, I have another curiosity about that. It's my understanding, or I grew up understanding, that when I came to your office and told you something about my medical condition, that it was, it was sacred. It was between the doctor and the patient. Is that correct? correct? Yes, that is correct. Then how did the people from the CAFIS system or the government reporting system review your patient's files and then talk to the patient outside of your relationship and tell them that they need to go get their vaccine? Isn't that a violation of that, that sanctity between patient and doctor? Well, on the forms, one had to put the patient's contact details. So in other words, a telephone number or... And so public health... Um, and, and the idea was so that public health could look into it and, and, and um, deal with it appropriately. But their way of dealing with it was literally to just deny that it was from the vaccine. So are you telling us that public health has access to and reviews personal medical information of patients? Well, if you, uh, yeah, they wouldn't have access to their, that person's family doctor's medical records. But I would imagine that if you went into an emergency room or, uh, or, or if you had some in-hospital treatment, that, that they would probably have access to that um, they, that goes into a database of, of what happens in government hospitals um, that I would expect that they would have access to. I wonder if patients are aware of that, that they don't have that sacred um, secrecy between the doctor and the emergency room and themselves where they may or may not in the doctor's office. Well, they certain, so, so normally public health wouldn't be able to access, yeah, as their family doctor's medical records. Uh, I still had paper files. In, I had paper charts um, in my office. Um, 
I was mistrustful of electronic medical records. I couldn't understand why the government was paying doctors to change to electronic medical records. I, I didn't know how that was going to improve patient care or be in the patient's best interests. And so when, my, when all of my patients' records went up in smoke, um, a lot of my patients came to me and said they were very glad that their medical records went up in smoke <laughs> because there were things in their past that they would like to leave in the past. Um, in the charts that you showed uh, that were showing the, um, the infection rates, um, and you, you showed the graph, and I think it started um, uh, late in 2020, and it proceeded through to 2023. Now, in my understanding from previous testimony that, you know, COVID-19 reportedly showed up in the world in the late part of 2019 was in Canada, the first reported cases, I think January 2020. And so, and then the government declared a pandemic in March of 2020. Now, it would seem to me, and I'm asking this question of you, that there was no vaccines in 2020, at least until December 15th or 18th. And the population most at risk had not been exposed to COVID-19 in 2020 until 2020, sorry, I would have expected that there would have been a very quick rising peak in 2020 with no protection, no, no therapeutics, nothing else. But it seems that it was from your graphs that there, there was no peak in 2020, and then the peak came out in, in uh, 2021 following the vaccines. Can you comment on, on that a little bit? Yeah, well, early on in this pandemic, we knew that the average age in Canada of people who were dying with COVID was 83. And that in the very first part of this pandemic, um, I think in BC at least, about 80% of all the people that were dying were in long-term care facilities or, or the old age homes. So the fact that they were shutting down schools when most of the people who were dying were already beyond normal life expectancy showed the absurdity of the mandates. But um, I, I guess what I was just trying to show in that graph about uh, that, that, that we're much worse off since the vaccines were rolled out, that, that things were much better before there were any vaccines at all. And, and in fact, if you, I don't know if you can see the graph again, the tallest peak in that graph was, was the first Omicron wave. Now, Omicron was only one-third as dangerous as the original Wuhan strain, one-third. And yet, in Canada, it, we had more people in hospital with Omicron than ever before once most people were vaccinated, even though it was much less dangerous. If you compare to the graph, um, in South Africa, for example, you'll see that their last wave, that shortest one, was Omicron, because they had herd immunity. Omicron wasn't an issue, and that was at the end of it, uh, because and it, Canada had lost its immunity. South Africa retained it. You know, um, I, I, I tend to ask this question all the time, or perhaps too much, but it's something that really bothers me or I'm curious about. And that is, and I understand this, you said that doctors were warned not to say anything. And by and large, they didn't. Those last words are mine. We've heard this about our police. We've heard this about our ministers. We've heard this about our judiciary. We've heard this about almost every aspect of society which was supposed to protect us from something like this. Can you, and, and, I, and I, I, although I, I can't ask this, I would ask the crowd how many sitting here have been threatened or warned not to say anything, but they still have. And so my question to you is, how is it that a people, some of the groups that we've talked about, who we give such an, an elevated position in our society, lawyers, doctors, judges, we hold them in reverence. We always have. And yet, it only took a warning for them to be silent. Can you comment a little bit about that? I think this entire pandemic has been a moral integrity test. For doctors, for our politicians, for the police, 
for lawmakers, for judges, right across the board. It has been a moral integrity test. There are some people who will do what they're told no matter what. And there are some people who will do what is right no matter what. And that is the difference. That is the moral integrity test. Will you do what is right no matter what risk it is to you? Or will you put yourself first and do whatever it takes to protect you even if it puts other people at harm? And we've seen it, it, it this, is, this has been a great revealer of moral integrity. And unfortunately, we've seen it in the law courts, we've seen it with the politicians, we've seen it in the media, of, of those people who will do what is right no matter what compared to those who will just do what they're told no matter what. I think it comes down to that. I, I wonder if that's why we didn't see a lot of doctors and lawyers and police officers in Ottawa, but we saw truckers there. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you, sir. So there you have it, my friends, an absolutely shocking um, and very revealing testimony from Dr. Hoff. Um, <clears throat> like I always say at the end of these, um, <clears throat> if you, uh, you want to listen to it a few times, it's so chock full of information. Uh, this is my third round listening to it, and I still, I'm still picking up more uh, from it. it. It's just unbelievable. And a lot of it's not a surprise. Like we knew... We had experts speaking out against these vaccines that that warned that this was exactly what was going to happen, and it did, and it did. Uh, a pandemic of the vaccinated, the exact opposite of what our governments and health agencies were, were telling us. And the one incredibly revealing thing that I didn't know prior to Dr. Hoff's uh, testimony was that Health Canada is 80 per, 80%. Uh, sponsored by pharmaceutical pharmaceutical companies. So what does that tell you? They are 100% corrupt. 100%. Not that most institutions in this country aren't. But anyway, my friends, that's where we'll end this one. So like always, if you want to reach out to me, you can find me on Facebook. It's Canadian Patriot Radio. The message button comes directly to me. So use that for any information that you think is show worthy or if you just want to chat. Um, <clears throat> The email is CanadianPatriotRadio at gmail.com. The telegram room is t.me backslash CPR underscore two. And the uh, website is CanadianPatriotRadio.ca. Thank you so much for tuning in again, my friends. And until next time, in all thy armed sons and daughters, command. joining us for another episode of Canadian Patriot Radio. CPR is not filmed before a live studio audience. If you like the show, friends, make sure you give us a thumbs up and share us on all your social media platforms. Until next time, take care.